0: Hey, this is Annie and Samantha, and welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You, a production of iHeartRadio. Today, we're talking about love. Love. Yeah, like a very simple topic, not complex at all. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, both of us have definitely had the song, What Is Love, stuck in our head for weeks. The entire time. I also, there's so many songs about love. I want to know what love is. It's been a frequent uh, playing in my mind as well. Oh, see, I'm going to start singing things if you keep bringing
1: titles up like that. Well, that's my goal. Oh, that's God. my whole thing. It's going to be a whole montage of me just singing one line because I can't remember the entire song. Yeah.
0: Perfect. <laughs> we should put that in here. Um, today, we're specifically talking about romantic and relationship love, and particularly perhaps the uh, relationship between love and sex, and what that looks like. Um, because, yeah, there there is a whole wide world of love, and I think we could do a huge mini series on love and sex. Um, so if we skip over any of your favorite aspects of these things, if you want us to discuss something else in the future, please write in. I know we're talking about, uh, like, what is dating divorce like or dating at an older age, um, all kinds of things. So before we get into this, a uh, trigger warning for brief mentions of sexual assault and trauma. And I did want to start this with um, sort of my personal Feelings around love and I do want to say like I don't want any of this to come across as like sweeping generalizations. I very much know this is me and this is how I feel and it's down to experiences I've had in my life. So I am someone who crushes really, really easy because uh, I think crushing feels safe um and it's fun and I have been in love before. But one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this is because I've also been really struggling to untangle my feelings around love and sex. As you all know, I've been trying to nail down what it means for me to be asexual, and further complicating that is my past history of trauma, which has totally eroded my sense of trust in literally everything, in myself, wherein I feel like I'm tricking people into liking me, and... I don't trust myself to know what I actually want and to communicate that effectively. I also don't trust other people to be honest with what they want, and I frequently feel like I'm playing a game wherein I don't know the rules of that game. Like There's a level of communication going on that most people seem to get, but I do not get it, which feels very, very unsafe to me. And when I find out people have any sort of romantic interest in me, I immediately feel guilty. And like the only thing they've wanted out of me this entire time is sex. And this manifested in a recent conversation with a friend of mine where I was saying how whenever I realized that someone had interest after years of friendship, I felt like everything had just been a trick to get sex. And that was how they saw me, how I'm afraid all of society sees me like a sex object, and that's it. And she said rightfully so, that you can care about someone and you can love someone with no strings attached, even if you would like a physical relationship, uh, even if they don't feel the same way. And it was just so opposite of how I see things. I didn't even know how to respond to her. And I know, again, that's my baggage. That's me. And on top of that, as someone who doesn't want to have sex, I have a real fear around in any way misleading someone that I might. And since in my mind, I think, In a lot of people's minds, sex is a part of a healthy relationship. And yes, I know it doesn't have to be, but I think most people think of it that way. That means I'm afraid that saying yes to a relationship is putting me in danger, even if I'm upfront about all of this, which I usually am, and the other person says it's fine. I feel like they just believe they'll be the one to change me or that they'll wear me down. Again, that lack of trust. And for a long time, I've just resigned myself to the fact that I'm not going to have a healthy relationship because I don't want to have sex. And I know that's not true, and it's something I'm only just now trying to reframe in my mind, but that's how I've thought for a long time. And it made me feel like something was wrong with me and that I was failing, compounded by the fact that success in our society equals stable relationship. Uh, Like I was trying to think of a rom-com that doesn't have a sexual element, could not do it. But also, I clearly have a hang-up around sex, about how I see it as something that's only used to hurt, to control, to degrade, how people who want to have sex with me do not see me as a person, which isn't true either, because sex absolutely can be, and often is, a part of a healthy, loving relationship. And you can just have sex because you want to. It can just be a fun thing that you want to do. Uh, This is something I'm currently, I can't even imagine that, um, but I am working on in therapy. Sex and love are so separate in my mind that you listeners got to hear it in our Ash Book Club episode, where it never even occurred to me that love and sex can coexist. Uh, And now we can argue about consent and what went down in that scene, and we will touch on our cultural depictions of love and sex. The point is, for me, the idea of someone actually loving me and wanting to have sex with me is unfathomable currently. I do think we could expound this out to how we have traditionally depicted women as sex objects and how a lot of our porn is degrading and violent towards women and all about male pleasure at women's pain and the impact of girls and women internalizing that. Probably a whole separate episode we could do. And I've also been experiencing lately, I have a friend who's um, dating, which is kind of put on hold because this whole quarantine thing And I was just listening to him talk about it and how excited he was about it and how much fun he thought it was. And I'm just just—I'm so jealous. I'm so jealous that those are fun things for people, that there isn't all this stuff to deal with. Because for me, like when people ask me out, it should be fine. It should be lovely. It should be great. But basically, no one who has asked me out has done anything wrong. Um, They are not looking to make me feel worthless. It's not their fault I feel this way. It's not my fault I feel this way. But that's the way it is. And ultimately, I think there's also insecurity and in a belief that I cannot be loved. So, all of that to say, love is complicated.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you want to summarize it into one thing, yes, love is obviously beyond complicated. And I'm, I'm pretty close with you. Uh, I definitely agree a lot of any of this, it would be a misogynistic view of how we have been forced to see ourselves in relationships. And when I say ourselves, those who identify as female, non-binary, who are seen as an object altogether, I think it becomes a traumatic sense in itself when you're dating. But then you add to past trauma when you have been used and you have been degraded and you have been someone who has uh, lost power somehow because people are using power over you in order to uh, satisfy themselves and degrade someone. And I think that's a whole big conversation in itself. And we know that this is an actual way of changing a person's personality in the sense of when someone's control is taken away at youth and this is what they expect for the rest of their life. It is a lot of definitely questions and a lot of things that has to be undone. And I hear you. I'm with you. I've seen people there uh, in my job. That's kind of the conversation. And as where one extreme can be to completely shut off, the other extreme is to buy into it and um, lean into the fact that that's who they are now. And that is also traumatic and also really, really sad to see for me. I have a lot of trauma as well. We've talked about this so many times in our trauma series for both me and you and our point of view. Uh, I have a lot of attachment issues that I had to try to start working on in high school, in middle school, (laughs) when I came to the US outside of uh, being adopted. And I think... A big portion of my past is also not to trust and not to believe that something is real. And I think also for me, I'm a very literal person when it comes down to many of things. I'm very analytical as well, and I can get metaphors. However, for me, when I see and think of love, it's not just that feeling of you being nice to me, I need to see it. It needs to be consistent. And consistency is what brings me to be attached to you. So when you have me as a friend, I'll be a friend for life. It takes a lot to push me away, but when I'm done, I'm done. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm even less forgiving in a romantic relationship. I absolutely will turn away from someone if I feel like there's a chance of rejection and Mm -hmm. or a chance of abuse of power. So I think there's a lot of that conversation too. And for me, I'm trying to navigate even today, almost in my 40s, what the hell is love? I have actually gone and surveyed my friends and asked them individually. When they tell me they've told someone they love them, I was like, how did you know? What makes love? What made you say you love them? What is it about them that you're like, yes, I love you? And I kind of sit there and wait for them to respond. And of course, they kind of look at me with this baffled look of like, of course it's love. What are you talking about? We've been together for a year. We've been together for, you know, three months. Even more so when people will say that they've been together with someone for two months and they say, I love you. I was like, what? Are you sure? Mm-hmm. <laughs> are you are you real sure? You may want to go back and think about that, which is completely me projecting Because for me, I had never, ever said I love you um, to a man or to a partner or anyone in a romantic idea until just recently even. And it's kind of like, and it took literally years of bargaining and figuring that out for myself and with that person (laughs) as well. Now, again, for me, I'm with you, sex and love did not necessarily equate And it wasn't in in one thing. And I even came to the point of being, this is too hokey. This is ridiculous. Mm. Like making love, it makes me, like that phrase makes me cringe so hard. (laughs) Yeah, I hate it. I hate that phrase in every way. And it's it's kind of like, you know, those trigger words are like, oh God, why did you say that? That phrase is definitely one of those things that I'm like, oh God, why did you say that? Because that doesn't make sense to me. And even still, like, I'm in a fairly normal partnership right now. I say fairly, (laughs) nothing's really normal in that, you know, we're trying to grow together and learn together, but it still does not equate necessarily. Um, And I feel like for the longest time, I didn't have sex until I was Liz Lemon age, like 26, I think. Um, And a part of that was uh, so many things. Again, trauma, uh, insecurities, as well as a fear of what that seems like, of being that open and vulnerable. Because every act of, to me, what uh, sex is and the intimacy is very vulnerable. You're, you're showing yeah. a part of yourself that you may not have ever wanted to show anyone. Like, I don't know people see. Shoot, I'm looking at myself with a double chin around them I'm like, uh, ah, why am I looking at myself <laughs> like this? But it's kind of that level of trying to bring and mesh those two things together. And my assumption has always been, <laughs> it's all about the sex. It, it yeah. is. And I think that's part of the whole patriarch in valuing and the, what is the value of a woman, what is the value of those feminine traits. And it is for pleasure, it is for uh, oppression, and it's kind of all of those things. So it's it's really a twofold, very hard thing to understand. And that's kind of the conversation you and I have had many a times about sex and unfolding the power of sex and why it's important to break down those thought process and break down the fact that women can enjoy sex. Those who identify as female who have for so long felt like they're being used or they're using it for something, had to let go of that fact of being like, oh, this can also be for me and about me. Okay. Yeah. And I think that's the whole conversation. And that's until feminism is no longer necessary. And I say that in the sense of the movement and the word in itself being such a cringeworthy thing for many of people who think it's about women hating men. And Mm -hmm. until we can make the idea, this misogynistic idea as a whole, until we can recognize it in our everyday life and everyday social commentary and everyday understanding of our own selves and our own bodies, I think it's still going to be really hard to let go of the fact that sex is not about power, and sex can be about love. And what does that truly, truly look like? So for me, I absolutely am with you, and I'm still, again, I'm hitting 40 this year, y'all. I'm hitting 40, and I still have no idea what the hell this looks like (laughs) other than I know for me, for love, when I express love, whether it's romantically, whether it's in friendship, it's me, hopefully, being selfless enough to make sure you're okay and that you are cared for and you are seen and you are heard. So that in itself should be translated into sex as well. But that's a whole other conversation of putting those two things together.
0: Yeah, and I did want to go back to one thing you said because I do think um, a big part of love is vulnerability. And uh, in the longest-term relationship I've ever had, I remember having this moment where I was, I was sharing these, like, personal things I'd never really shared with anybody. And I sort of jokingly looked at him and I said, I've just given you the tools to destroy me if you wanted to. And it, I think that's another thing of trauma is, like, accepting you have this past history of people looking for these things to hurt you with. And you're having to trust that someone won't do that. Right. And um, sex is very vulnerable as well. And then I think along with all of this, I have, uh, I know I said in a past episode, I think being creative is really analytical. And when I need to get into a dark space really quickly, I have what I call a a nuclear thought. And all it is is primordial unworthiness, Mm -hmm. just feeling absolutely unworthy. And I think when you have that in you, it's hard, if you can't love yourself it's hard to accept love from other people. Right. Right. And
1: and I think I would add to this caveat because I have had this many a conversation because on the outside, I have a strong personality. I will defend the weak till... To the death. Like I will absolutely <laughs> go after someone that I'm a fierce and loyal person. And I'm a fierce individual in itself. If I think you are in the wrong and you are. Um, and when I say you and I think you're in the wrong, I'm saying you're being oppressive. I'm saying you're being um, racist. You know, any of those things, I'm going to come at you real hard. And because of that strong personality, when I have made the statement before, which you just did as well, that I don't think I can be loved or I am lovable that people oftentimes kind of, people who have never been into this level of have had their power taken from them and have had their own bodies used against them and, or have had their own feelings, insecurities used against them to this level that is paralyzing, don't understand why you can't just shake it off. Yeah. Um. And just for a lot of the people, because I know we've got some damn strong listeners and I love it. I love how strong you as our audience are because you are fierce. You are finding out who you are if you don't already know who you are. And I love that. But I also know sometimes having that on the front, people pass by to see, oh, you can handle it. And that's not yeah. necessarily the case. And oftentimes, these are, this is the kryptonite in our lives. And I remember I had a really good friend who is, I, I love her. I love them essentially because they are so strong. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and they just can't understand why you can't feel the fact that they are confident in who they are, they know themselves and they're willing to stand up and just, you know, are able to do that. And then they like, why can't you? And it's just the whole conversation of that past trauma, that past, not even just past trauma, just current insecurities, anxieties about yourself have a lot to do with the fact that these things cannot connect in your brain especially when you're trying to make sense of it as a literal term and I just wanted to point out for both that A, those who are like me who feel strong we see you we know that there's that vulnerability and it's hard it's hard to see that and B, for those who are able to see themselves in that light and are able to give that please show people how to do that talk to people and and encourage them how you can do it like it's not about bragging it's about finding who you are and that's wonderful I think yes Oh, God. There's so many things. Obviously, we yes. just opened up a whole big box of things. But let's go ahead and start with
0: definitions. Yes. But before that, uh did want to say we do want to recognize that for some people, uh, for one reason or another, physically can't have sex. is very painful. We see you as well. Yes. We see you as well. And yes, and that's also
1: the conversation of why it's not necessarily important to equate sex as the only way of communicating
0: love. Yes. yes. Uh,
1: but all right. Yes. Agreed. Definition okay. time. Definition time. Here we go. So... Oof. How would you define love? Well, the ancient Greeks had seven different words for love, and we know there's a lot of different words. It's yeah. a complicated one to define, but the Merriam-Webster took a swing at it with, quote, strong affection for another arising out of kinship or personal ties. And professionals define love in the context of romantic love as a set of emotions, behaviors, beliefs, tied to powerful feelings of affection, respect, warmth, and protectiveness. And people do define love in different ways. Some hallmarks are things like putting someone else's well-being above your own, intense attachment or need, and in structural terms, choosing to commit to someone through marriage and or by having a child with them. And it can look different for different people and across cultures. Love is something that cannot be turned off. You often can't control it. And also, you can have an orgasm without love. Just just a reminder, you can buy an orgasm. And at this time, I think a lot of people have. Yes. Um, (laughs) But you
0: can't buy true love. It is mostly unconditional. And sort of going off of what Samantha and I were talking about, um, recently in therapy, my therapist told me about trauma bonds, and we'll probably do a whole episode on it, but wanted to include a brief overview just because I do see this really often in my friends and in myself. A trauma bond is sort of like Stockholm syndrome, and it's one of the reasons people stay in abusive and or toxic relationships. It's a survival strategy where a relationship starts out seemingly healthy, but turns abusive, and the person being abused tries to figure out what they're doing wrong to restore the relationship back to what it once was. Trauma bonding is a type of attachment that comes out of years of abuse or traumatic experiences. If that abuse came from someone who was taking care of you as a child who loved you but also abused you, then the ideas of abuse and love can get tangled up together. And to feel loved, you feel like you need to feel abuse. Right. And with that
1: trauma bonds, we can delve into the idea of familial abuse patterns, which we kind of talked about in our trauma series the same in referencing children who witness domestic violence will often attribute that as normal and a twisted show of relationships and love and will often fall into similar behavior in their own relationships which you just kind of mentioned
0: yeah so that's a whole thing another example of how complex love can be uh, and we will probably return to that in the future but for now let's talk love science Love science. there's Love science. There is so much of it. From an evolutionary perspective, love is all about survival of the species, both in terms of procreation, but also in terms of it's easier to survive as a team if you have someone to help you pull resources. MRI scans of brains of people in love show the areas associated with the feel-good reward chemical dopamine are just on fire. These areas are also tied to feelings of motivation, want, focus, and craving. As I'm sure you've probably all heard, these are the same areas that light up when cocaine users feel that first sensation of euphoria, and they also play a role in addiction. Research often breaks
1: love down into three stages, lust, attraction, and attachment. And when we first fall in love, this flood of chemicals not only incites an emotional response, but also an influx of stress hormone cortisol, which causes things like your racing heart, sweaty palms, butterflies in your stomach, and those feelings of attachment partially caused by oxytocin. Vasopressin is also in the mix, which might be behind some of the feelings of sexual monogamy, empathy, and trust, which is interesting. And other studies suggest that how the heart reacts under stress directly influences how the brain processes emotion and therefore the level of power we assign those emotions. So estrogen and testosterone are also involved, particularly in sexual attraction.
0: I find it really, really interesting that our bodies respond similarly to a threat. Because love is all about vulnerability, as we said. So it makes sense. It makes sense. I always uh, attributed uh <laughs> This
1: is too much, when I'm going to say it. Time, I, was like, I think I actually tweeted this a long, long time ago about how I felt like uh, sometimes when I've, I have a crush, it feels like also the same feeling when I need to poop. <laughs> the
0: same interesting stomach feeling. Just saying. Mm, I wonder what that... What that is. That
1: correlation is for me.
0: Yeah. So I have a, and I still am not able to explain this. If any listener can write in and explain it. When I was like in middle school, I, at the time we called each other on the phone. I called her and I said, look, I think I just had an orgasm. And she was like, what? <laughs> and I said, yeah, I'm watching like my crush on TV and I just felt this like really powerful swooping feeling everywhere and it wouldn't stop. And I still get that. Like when I crush really hard, I can just, it's like a swooping. Um, and I don't know. I, I thought, because it's not butterflies in the stomach, it's a different thing. Yeah. It's way more powerful than that. Right. Um, I, it's not an orgasm. I didn't know back then, but uh, now we know. Now I know. Uh, Yeah, if anyone's got any answers on that thing, I would love to know. Um, One study has found that couples in love synchronize breath and heartbeat. Another one found that, quote, being in love literally induces a state which is not normal. And another one found a correlation between thoughts of a loved one and decreased activity in the reasoning and judgment area of the brain. The conductors of this study likened it to beer goggles, a suspension of belief conducive to procreation. Mm. And yet another study found that when two people experience a connection, their brain patterns mimic each other's. This study was really, really, really fascinating. A part of this has to do with the vagus nerve, which runs from your brain to your heart. And some of the things it does is allow for synchronization of facial expressions with someone else, better maintaining of eye contact, adjusting tiny muscles in your ears so you can better hear someone's specific voice frequency. The vagus nerve's ability to do this is measured as something called vagal tone. A high vagal tone means more chances at connections with others, more chances at love, potentially. A study looking at loving kindness meditation found that people can significantly increase their vagal tone if they put their mind to it. Basically, if you think about loving someone else, you kind of can increase your ability to love someone else. Uh, Beyond just having more meaningful connections, several other health benefits are linked with high vagal tone. And one thing I want to say about this study, I highly recommend reading it, Um, It was trying to reframe how we think about love entirely. And it was saying like, you can feel love with a stranger for two minutes. It's the same feeling. It's just not the everlasting, like, I'm going to marry this person or whatever, be with this person forever. But you can still experience love, even if for a short time for someone else. It was really cool. So if I ever meet Chris Evans. (laughs) That's what's going to happen. It's true love, but only
1: for two minutes. (laughs) Okay. I just wanted to remind myself and put this out there to all the world. (laughs) Yes. So the first pheromones we discovered in the 1950s, a chemical female silkworms gave off to attract males. But as of yet, we have no strong proof of a human equivalent, which are we still doing those research yet? Do you know?
0: Yeah, I know people are still looking into it. And there was some kind of, Inconclusive research that suggested that uh, there is a in the sweat gland of men. I believe there's something equivalent to pheromones. Um, pigs have the same thing, and that's how they use truffle pigs. By the way, uh, you can check out Savor episode for that. <laughs> okay, then. There's no definitive proof, but yes, science is ongoing looking into
1: this for right. sure. So, and I was thinking about this before because when we were talking about the two minute love epi- like moments, lust can be confused with love. It involves similar chemicals, and I feel like that's been said, and people kind of already know that. Uh, The main difference is the emotional connection, one that lust can eventually lead to.
0: Yes. Going back to those three stages, a lot of researchers divide it up into lust, attachment, love. Right. And there is a difference between lust and attraction. They are very closely related and often do happen in tandem, but they can occur separately. Chemically, lust has more to do with testosterone and estrogen, while attraction has more to do with reward pathways in the brain, dopamine, norepinephrine. Uh, These chemicals can give us a sense of euphoria, excitement, energy, giddiness, and also decrease our appetite and make it difficult to sleep. So if you've ever been unable to eat or sleep because of love, the science behind it. At the same time, the level of serotonin decreases, which might explain the almost obsessive feelings in the early phases of love. Too much dopamine is what can lead to things like jealousy. I wonder what happens
1: with heartbreak. Because for me, that loss of sleep and appetite happens if I'm heartbroken.
0: It's probably very similar where it's like you're still feeling those things, but you now you've been cut off. Right. So, sexual arousal
1: has been shown to switch off regions of the brain involved in rationality and critical thinking and self-awareness. Some academics speculate there are two types of love, love and erotic love. While love is all about the other person, while erotic love is about
0: wanting something for yourself. Yes, which is also interesting. I love how much science there is around all of this. There has to be. There has to be. And there's also a lot in our pop culture about all of this and we'll get into that but first we're going to get into a quick break for a word from our sponsor and we're back thank you sponsor so yes love in our culture so much So much. I also, I cannot,
1: as you were going for the ad break, it's still in my, what is love?
0: Oh, yeah. I can't stop. It's
1: going to be there forever. (laughs) So we are obsessed with the idea of love. Obviously, we just really went into a rant. Um, Like all the (laughs) movies and TV shows and books and video games and songs are about love in one form or the other, or most of them anyway. If they're not, it's about a story about probably tragedy of some sort. Not necessarily romantic love, but love. A million quotes. We're going to, oh God, breeze by some of these
0: scenes, but most definitely deserve their own episode. I once got into, not an argument, but kind of like a challenge with a friend of mine because I was positing, I think if we listen to 20 songs at random, every one of them is going to be about love. And, uh... I maintain I won. He, we got in a fight about, what is that Macklemore song about the scooter (laughs) downtown? He says that one's not about love. I think it is. But anyway. It's about love or sex for sure. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. We did say love or sex. Okay. And he was like, I think it's about his scooter. And I was like, he loves that dang scooter though. (laughs) But anyway. Not wrong. Okay. What is love according to pop culture? And I know we've talked about this time and time again. You've probably heard it in many places not on this podcast, but our traditional pop culture depictions of love are oftentimes, at the very least, setting us up for a letdown or, at the worst, romanticizing obsessive, stalkerish, jealous, possessive behavior. The idea of getting the girl and entitlement, if you put in the time rape and wearing someone down, painted as acceptable behaviors, this all contributes to rape culture and an unhealthy view of what love is. And I actually got into a fight with my ex once because he said I wasn't jealous enough. Which is interesting. Yeah, but I mean, I think that's a really good indicator of how we have depicted love and internalized those messages from our pop culture of like, jealous means he must really care or she must really care. But it's not healthy. That's not no. a healthy thing. No, uh, I would, please no. Yeah. So, uh,
1: monogamy and the idea of the one. Yeah, the, so, one. So the one. The um, one. One study found you should reject the first thirty-seven percent of potential life partners, and then after that, whoever you meet that is better than all of those that came before is the one. And the I'm going to keep one. saying it like that. You yeah. Have please to. echo me. <laughs> If you're thinking of implementing this into your life, the first step is figuring out the maximum number of people you want to date in your lifetime. And I can't imagine what that looks like with online dating right now. Like, oh, it's sure. endless. It could be endless. I've definitely been, when I first started online dating, I went on, I want to say like four dates within two weeks with different people.
0: Wow. Yeah. yeah. So, mm I feel like this is a movie character. She probably already exists, but who is like really like making a list of, you know, doing the math, doing like calculus level math. And she's on a date with someone and she's like, well, I'm sorry, but you're within the first 37%. So
1: it's not meant to be. So Sex and the City, it is, I feel like one of the things, and I do love, the show. Uh, it's definitely not dated well, just so you know. Uh, but you have each one of those different characters with different personas and one of the characters, Charlotte, was kind of that methodical person was reading all the yeah. books on how to get husbands, reading all the books on who she should hang out with and in order to get those perfect husbands. So yeah, definitely those characters do exist. <laughs>
0: Um, and and did want to put in here, again, we're breezing by these things that should definitely be entire episodes, but love can be expressed in all kinds of ways outside of this traditional monogamous way. Open and polyamorous relationships can absolutely be loving and healthy. And I actually started wondering about how people in poly and open relationships are doing during quarantine. So if anyone wants to write in and let us know, please do. Definitely a future episode. Um, And then love at first sight. This is something that's pretty popular in our pop culture depictions of love. Um, It is possible. There there are uh, studies into it, and then there is a lot of anecdotal evidence of, you know, I saw this person across the room, and I just knew, and then they fell in love. Um, It's also possible to have short bursts of love for someone, like we were saying earlier, but not be in love. In my personal take on this, I think it is possible, but it's a lot rarer than perhaps we think.
1: <laughs> right. I wonder if this is the whole romantic could have been notion, oh, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also the idea of love languages. And in 1992, Gary Chapman published the book, The Five Love Languages, and how to express heartfelt commitment to your mate. So the basic premise is that people express and experience love in five ways, which is very Narrow Um, words of affirmation, physical touch, quality time, acts of service, and receiving gifts. Chapman thinks each person has a primary and secondary love language, and the key to healthy relationship is to know and understanding the love language of your partner or partners. So, Annie, do you know yours? Did you ever take this test?
0: I actually just took it for this episode. I feel like so Chapman has released several books after this, and for some reason, I feel like love languages. Maybe like four years ago was a big topic of conversation. Everyone was talking about it. I feel like it but comes back up again. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I took it and I got... I was tied between quality time and acts of service and words of affirmation was like really close. All right. So I would have
1: absolutely said quality time for you at the very beginning. I would have said receiving... Not receiving, giving gifts. Acts of service, giving gifts is what I would have imagined. Because you love giving... Very personalized gifts to people, and I feel like I love giving gifts. That's what I mean, giving. That's what I say. Not like I guess that could be under acts of service. Yeah. So that could go there. Uh, Yeah. And then words of affirmation. Yeah. 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 Yeah, For me, mine was absolutely acts of service. Actually, that was my very top one. So Mm -hmm. you know, I love you if I'm doing things for you or making sure I'm taking care of you somehow. And then Mm -hmm. I think the second one was uh, uh, words of affirmation. And then the third one was quality of time. So we're, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, So this was a long time ago. And I was like, yeah, that is that is me to a T to a certain extent. And I think that's a lot of uh, people who work in nonprofits and industries like that. That's kind of our thing. Mm -hmm. But it is very religious. I do remember that because it was during my religious phase. Um, (laughs) It was a very long phase. Uh, But yeah, I still think there's some truth to it. Of course, I do think it's too
0: easily scaled down.
1: Sure, but, like, yeah. kind
0: of reductive. Yeah, I do. I think I appreciate the idea of because I've definitely had a moment of realizing what I see is like this powerful thing. Maybe someone else doesn't like, and that's fine. <laughs> but it's good to know, like, oh, okay, you these things are more important to you, and these things are more important to me. And as long as we get that, right? Um, all right. So, meet cute and flirting. I did not know what know what Meet Cute was.
1: I love that we're coming back to Meet Cute so often because I had to explain that to you in your face
0: going, what? <laughs> <laughs> What's that? What? <laughs> I totally get it now. I thought it was like a dating app or something. <laughs> Which would be uh, a great dating app. Me Cute. Um, a 2004 analysis of flirting literature found six main motivations behind flirting. And oh my gosh, we have to do a flirting episode in the future. Yeah. Um, one, trying to have sex. Fun, exploration of potential relationship, trying to increase intimacy in a relationship, self-esteem boost, and using it to get something from someone. Uh, This analysis also identified four main types of flirts. Physical, traditional, meaning the man makes the first move. Sincere, trying to get someone to open up. And playful, seeing it as a game. According to science, most of the successful methods of flirting are things like holding eye contact, the, quote, coy gaze, <laughs> smiling a lot, uh, complimenting someone, making someone laugh, maybe wearing something red, especially as a woman, as discussed in our Sminty Sees Red episode. A majority of flirting, I think almost 70%, is body language, so... Uh, I remember when Hitch, the the dude that the movie Hitch is based on, The Love Doctor, I think he's called, um, he came to my college and he said something like asking someone what was something really fun that they'd done recently so they'd associate fun with you.
1: So he actually, did he do a class
0: or something? Yeah, he did like a talk. Wait, you went to this? Yes, I did. (laughs) I don't know what I need to think about your shock about it. I'm actually pretty shocked. I'm sorry. That's okay. It's, it's fair. That's fair. Uh, you know what always cracked me up about it, though? I was thinking a lot of people were there and, like, how embarrassing it would be if you tried this move on someone who was also at that thing. So this was at Tech, right? Yes. Okay, yes. that makes sense. Well, I will move on from your judgment, <laughs> Samantha. J.K.L. <laughs> And then I got to thinking of what a whole different ballgame this is when it comes to online dating. Because again, I have some friends who are on Tinder or whatever it is. And sometimes I'll just observe them like I'm a documentarian or something like... So now you must wait how long before you send an emoji? <laughs> like <laughs> Right. I will say when I was online dating and
1: my friends who are already a couple married or whatever, and I have one friend who's been married forever. <laughs> we love to joke about the fact that, that she was uh, so young and there's been together like old couples since, you know, their mid Their teenage years—it is not true, but we just tease them. Um, And they're—they're great. They're happy. But she got so excited when I was like, "This is what my uh, dating app looks like." And started like swiping people left and right, left and right. I was like, "Okay, I'm taking that away from you," because she was so intrigued by what it was and trying to figure out how does this work. And then coming around asking, "So that guy that I swiped so and so for—did he contact you? What happened?" Like she was very intrigued. So it definitely is a whole new ball game. Not anymore, but was definitely at that point in time,
0: yeah, yeah, it's just different when we talk about flirting, and Samantha and I were discussing earlier, we were reading these articles about flirting, and a lot of them said, "You know, do the gentle arm touch, and we were like, "Not now though, <laughs> nope, Don't touch no touching. no touching, uh, so that's also a whole different ball game, um, and you can see we did it, Samantha and I did an episode on uh, kind of the gamification of modern dating, uh Almost a year ago, I think. A while ago. Uh, So You can listen to that if you want to learn more. Science has also found that men overestimate women's sexual interest and women underestimate men's sexual interest in the context of hetero relationships, which surprised me not at all. (laughs) Right.
1: (laughs) Um, So... Speaking of hetero relationships, we kind of wanted to delve into what this men versus women may look like. And in a hetero relationship, stats have shown that men actually fall in love faster than women and tend to be the first to say, I love you, but women are more likely to say it more often. So it's kind of like that, huh, okay. And I don't know if this has that trope of men saying I love you because they're trying to get sex. Like that that popped into my head. I don't know for uh-huh. sure, but the statistics so far saying that men do fall in love quicker, I don't know where they got those numbers. I'm guessing they just asked. Uh, who knows. Um, and with that, men are more likely to fall in love with several women while women have a smaller number or amount. So this could be one of those probabilities over sound proof because again, I don't know where all these numbers came from as I was researching it, but I was like, okay, cool. Um, but there is that conversation of like, if you are quicker to fall in love, but then you're quicker to like move on mm. and assuming whatever, maybe you would have a higher number. Who knows? Who knows why? I could not find those answers. I'm so I'm sure someone out there actually do do know. Can you tell me? Someone tell me?
0: Anybody tell me? The truth of love <laughs> is complicated. Uh, we did want to talk about marriage uh, very briefly. Again, whole episode. Um, So we wanted to talk about where we are today and what are the roles and expectations. So start with the definition. According to Merriam-Webster, marriage is defined as a state of being united as spouses in a consensual and contractual relationship recognized by law. Um, Yeah, so we're not going to go
1: back into the conversation of feminism and marriage and weddings, as it's already been covered a couple of times by previous hosts. And you should definitely go take a listen, because I know it's still very controversial. But we did want to go quickly over some of the connotations of marriage and women today.
0: Yeah, and as you you might guess, when you're researching the topic of love and marriage uh, as as according to women, there's a lot of stuff out there, uh, whether it's a how-to guide to being happy in marriage, uh, why it isn't beneficial to women, or how to make it beneficial, or I'm sure, like, I would bet right now if you looked at a, if you happened to be out and glanced at a magazine rack, one of the headlines on one of the magazines is How to Keep Your Marriage Sexy, or How to Keep Your Man in Your Marriage, or something. Right. Keep that man in that bed. Um, yes. i have definitely seen that headline. So when it comes
1: down to love and marriage, is there a difference in what is being considered when it comes to this long-term contract? It seems there's not too many differences, including the fact, according to Match.com, specifically to the UK, women feel marriage is security in a relationship, not necessarily about financial or economic security, but a level of security in a long-term commitment. With papers! Yay! They also say that it does seem that men are more hesitant to get married, as the average age of men who marry is 32, while for women in the UK is 30. Interesting side note, the average of remarriages, or getting married again, have risen from 13% in 1960 to 23% in 2013, making it one in four people getting married again who had been married once before.
0: Hmm, Also something to note, uh, marriage has decreased, and there have been a lot of different theories and reasons as to why that might be. In one study, the focus was on men no longer being, quote, economically attractive, as well as possible incarceration of the male population. Uh, This is a generalization, a kind of simplified version of a massive study, uh, while another shows the rise of single life, uh, which focuses on the idea that marriage is no longer necessary. Single people can have children, have sex, and even own houses. And single people can enjoy their freedom and current lifestyle and feel fulfilled without marriage. Uh, Also, I would throw out uh, birth control, Mm. um, (laughs) things like that, which I think uh, may all of this could align more with the millennial way of seeing things.
1: Yeah. However, we're coming back to the big picture. Marriage typically is aligned in two schools of thoughts, traditional and modern. Traditional being man or the masculine being head of the household with traditional gender roles and modern, which can also be thought of as an androgynous or the idea of shared gender traits or what would be considered masculine and feminine traits. Again, this seems to be coming up a lot as we're researching about gendered traits, which I think we would definitely need to go back and have a conversation on. We can see the very big differences right now as families are having to put these roles in heightened, tight space circumstances. Hashtag quarantine
0: life. Indeed. (laughs) Uh, But with all of that, less than 5% of Americans report that they would get married without romantic love, which is a reminder of a big historical shift because marriage used to, completely be about economics. But now, in the United States, it's very much about uh, love. As in fact, according to one study, love is still the number one reason for marriage in the United States or the most important reason to get married ahead of commitment and companionship. So, even though the reasons and standards of marriage has greatly changed over
1: the many generations, it does seem to be something women and men still desire to be in love, and sometimes
0: even married. You know, I... I mentioned recently on a podcast, I have been asked to get married before. Um, and recently, I've had not one, but two friends, female friends, semi jokingly float the idea of what they called a political marriage, <laughs> where we just get married and like hang out all the time. <laughs> and I was like happy. I was like, oh, hey, okay, I can get behind this. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. I think I've tried to invite you to my household.
0: <laughs> you have. You have. A few times. Uh, <laughs> I would be flattered and honored, Samantha. <laughs> um, but now we're gonna talk about sex. But first, we gotta pause for a quick break for a word from our sponsor.
1: back thank you sponsor can I do it let's talk about sex baby let's talk about you and me me, 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 oh
0: yeah so many songs for this episode (laughs) so many earworms (laughs) we're giving you Our pop culture is obsessed with sex, too. Sex sells, as they say. And we have definitely built it up into a huge thing in the Western world. According to some of my friends in Europe, particularly in the United States, um, the media we consume is telling us all the time, if you don't want to have sex, and often a lot of sex, something is wrong with you. There are differences in there with what we tell men versus what we tell women. Um, That if you aren't having sex in your relationship, something is off and you very might well break up over it. We build the first time into something mythical, but it's often not. Uh, we build sex up into this amazing thing and it absolutely can be. But a lot of times, it's fine. It's right. fine. So,
1: again... Sex is a very important part of relationships for many. A survey over at Elite Singles found that 80% of respondents said you can't have a serious relationship without sex. And when asked if they could be with someone who was abstinent, 68% said no, while 27% of men and 12% of women said only if they could have other sexual partners. Of course, this did come from a dating site, and I will say I have seen it on many a dating sites, they rank the importance of sex, uh, Mm -hmm. but a pretty good snapshot of how a lot of people view the role of sex in relationships. Or just think about friends with benefits. There's no pop culture romance without sex equivalent. We can imagine being friends with someone having sex, but for many, it's hard to conceptualize being in love without the sex part.
0: Yes. And also, obviously, you don't have to be in love to have sex with someone. I think I was trying to sort out why some of this stuff might be. And I think religion has played a a big role in this. For centuries in the Western world, we were told sex is bad unless you're married. And even then, don't enjoy it or you'll go straight to hell. Um... And this was because the church and or state didn't want to have to pay for a bunch of fatherless kids. And yes, fatherless, because women couldn't work or own things. Women were so repressed that they were getting diagnosed with hysteria and getting stimulated to orgasms at doctor's offices. In more recent times, with the advent of things like birth control, people wanted to have more sex, but there was still this nervousness around teen pregnancy and women and girls' sexual pleasure. So the narrative shifted to sex is the ultimate expression of love. Making love as you say. Um, So don't have sex till you have fallen in love and gotten married. So kind of tying all of those ideas together, marriage, sex, and love. Clearly, that's not really what's happening and a lot of people don't think that way but that is the messaging that's out there for sure
1: right and if we look at uh, sex education in the school systems it would also imply many of the same things because there's the debate of abstinence versus safe sex and we know abstinence comes under the control of a religious idea more oftentimes than not uh the idea that abstinence being wait till you find the one that's love true love waits am i Mm -hmm. right am i right Mm -hmm. Yeah, and for a lot of reasons, sex can be emotional, especially if it's tied with self-image and self-esteem issues. It can be really vulnerable, which we already talked about earlier. And so often, having sex with someone you know really well and are very comfortable with, possibly someone you love, is more enjoyable.
0: Yes, but clearly, uh, that differs uh, from person to person. And as we know, also hysteria around, ooh, hysteria, fun word to use, uh, hookup culture. We've seen that, too. So all of this is going on. And when you think about it, equating sex with love can actually be really damaging. If If you think you have to be young and beautiful to have sex, then do you have to be young and beautiful to be loved? If you aren't sexually desirable, you aren't lovable? What if for whatever reason you can't have sex? Does that make you not worthy of love? That's kind of the message we're getting if you think about it, and it's messed up. Super messed up. And another thing, I think feminism and liberation has gotten all tied up with this, too, in sort of a murky way. There's this these loud calls of women. Women like sex, too, and we like a lot of it, and we're horny, and we deserve pleasure. All are true. All are true. But I've definitely felt a pressure before to be vocal about how much I like sex, and that if I didn't, then I wasn't a good feminist, that I'm not liberated. So that's not good either. Right, and
1: we've got to understand. Once again, I think we've—this has kind of been one of the themes of— all of our shows is allow women to be who they are and not what you expect them and think they should be. And that's part of feminism just being genuinely you whether it is you enjoy or you don't enjoy and that's okay yes um, and as we are researching this we wanted to add a bit of what women consider sexy oh god and what I got was a laundry list of ways for men to attract women including advice about men wearing red apparently because oh. you know women also find this attractive I, I will say but for me I like the deep blue so when I see someone mm-hmm. coming with a deep blue shirt or what I'm like oh hi <laughs> Look at you. Um,
0: it's just yeah. the shirt. It's just a shirt. I'm like, is that a person? Who are I'm you? I'm just attracted to your shirt.
1: <laughs> but the thing about this is, it's like the many things that I was trying to find out, like what do women find sexy? What is it? And of course, it definitely leaned towards a little more of personality and um, about t- attraction, about being uh, personable and sense of humor, all of that. But more so of telling men how to get women was out there as well as yeah. telling women how to keep their man It yeah. was out there. And I'm not going to lie, I got really frustrated and I had to close my computer. I'm like, yep, yeah, I'm done for tonight. This is absurd because that was the majority of things being said out there instead of just talking about what is sexy to women and why is it important that we acknowledge that this is okay as well. It was more of how-to, guys, and yeah. I was very irritated.
0: yeah. That stuff always annoys me too and it really annoys me when they're like women find listening sexy. And I'm like shouldn't you just listen to people? Like right. wh- how far have we fallen where if you actually listen to the thing I'm saying to you that's sexy. Right. That are li- again the,
1: the idea is that women's standards are a lot lower than oh, men. Oh man, that's
0: a bummer. It's <laughs> <laughs> a bummer. Um and when researching the sex appeal for queer women, it did lend a lot uh, to the emotional and empathetic connection, but also apparently arms. Arms is just as important for queer women as it is to heterosexual women. So there's that. Right in, if that's the case. right, right. in. We would love some anecdotal uh, stories. Right. I mean, true. People
1: like arms. Um, and just to put it out there... It's common for libidos to change and for people in relationships to not be on the same level. That's okay. As always, open communication.
0: Yeah, I found more than one article from uh, mediators and marriage counselors saying, I see this all the time. And like usually, if they can just communicate and wait it out, It'll be okay. But that, I mean, it, again, that shows how much we have tied together this idea of love and sex. Um, so uh, there's a lot, a lot to untangle here. Uh, we put in some some of it and uh, our personal takes on some of it, but we would clearly love to hear from listeners um, any of your thoughts on any of this and what you think we should return to in what could be who knows how many part series on love and sex. So please email us at stuffmediamomstuff at at iheartmedia.com. You can find us on Instagram at stuffone never told you or on Twitter at Momstuff Podcast. Thanks as always to our super producer Andrew Howard. Thank you, Andrew, and thanks to you for listening. Stuff I'll Never Told You is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.